This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org. Our next guest has written some 20 novels. One of them won the Booker Prize in England. It's an extraordinary account of the story of a man who saved Jews from concentration camps. It was made into a motion picture by Steven Spielberg, Schindler's List. He has a new book out called A River Town, which examines his own roots from his country, Australia. Will you please welcome Thomas Keneally to West Coast Island. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Oh, not, not at all. <laughs> you were... wish there wasn't an audience, however. We could uh, speak more intimately. I, I recently sang Waltzing Matilda for National Public Radio uh, on All Things Considered, but it was only because I was in a room on my own. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, Mike's right there at the piano. This time you'll have a pianist. <laughs> You're an Australian Republican. What is an Australian Republican? We know what a Republican means in this country. Well, so that we can get on in Asia and with our own souls and with our Aboriginal uh, brothers and sisters, uh, we're trying to reform the Constitution so that we uh, get rid of our allegiance to the monarch of Great Britain as our head of state by 2000, so that when we have the Olympics in what happens to be my home suburb in Sydney, Homebush, the most boring suburb in the Antipodes, (laughs) uh, but now God has overdosed on that thing about the humble shall be exalted and we're going to have the Olympics there. (laughs) When we have the Olympics, we won't have the embarrassment of that Perfectly nice, but irrelevant corgi owner opening, <laughs> opening for us. Well, you know, we, we, we did that some 200 years ago. And, but, but nevertheless, there's a sort of residual fascination at, sort of, you know, the, at, the, at the National Enquirer kind of level. Uh, that's right. And I, I think uh, Australians will uh, and should have the freedom to show a lively interest uh, in what goes on on royal stairwells and in royal bedrooms. And uh, that we're not after a cultural revolution, we're after a constitutional adjustment. And we, we don't even want to sur- surround Cornwallis's army at Yorktown and assassinate redcoats. We just, uh, we'll just do it by referendum. And in a v- very nice fraternal way, the relationship will continue. We'll still win the Rugby World Cup from them. Uh, we'll, we'll still beat them at cricket. And, and our writers will continue to grow more and more interesting than theirs. <laughs> Spoken like a true Australian. You also spend part of your time as a professor at the University of California at Irvine. Um, and I just, uh, f- for people who don't know the, the story, and I know you're probably sw- followed around all the time by questions about Schindler's List because it made such an impact on so many people's lives. Um, you were what, shopping in a luggage store when you first got the story? 
Yes, I, uh, I was involved in the early revival of the Australian film industry in the 1970s when Mel Gibson used to get $15,000 per movie, which I think you fellas have now bumped up to about 19000 per movie. Uh, and uh, uh, I'd been to a festival of Australian films and was waiting for my plane and uh, went into a luggage store which belonged to a Schindler survivor. I'd never heard of Schindler up to that point. Uh, I was fascinated that he was a lapsed Catholic like me. He was an un I was an unsatisfactory Catholic because I didn't agree with the Vatican all the time. He was an unsatisfactory Catholic because of various reasons in those pre-AIDS days to do with zips and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I was fascinated that virtue should emerge in such a place. The uh, elderly gentleman, oh well he's elderly now, he's 81, the man who talked me into writing the book, The Survivor, uh, Paul Deck, uh, was very persuasive. Every argument I gave for not writing it, he had an answer. Uh, I said, for example, I, I come from Australia, which is as far as the European diaspora can go. Uh, and he said, that's good, you're, you're on the outside looking in. And I said, I'm a Gentile. And he said, well, uh, all the better that you don't have an ax to grind. So, uh, <laughs> One defense after another, he, he knocked down. And he, he always said it's, it's a great um, story of humanity man to man. He's too old to teach the political correctness of person to person to. Um, and he, um, he always said this to Spielberg. I remember in December 82 when we had a first meeting with Spielberg, which Paul Deck was not supposed to go to, but he went, he said... I know his mother. So he, he, <laughs> he went along, and after putting Spielberg in his place by saying, Stephen, I was talking to your mother, and, and she says you're doing very well. <laughs> and after saying, as Spielberg went to the toilet uh, during lunch, uh, he said loudly in his wake, Grossing two million a day, he has to wear sneakers, I ask you. Uh, <laughs> but then he said, Stephen, this is a great story of humanity, man to man, and if you make this, it will win you an Academy Award. December 82, he said that. So he, he's uh, a persuasive man. Now he's working on um, Spielberg, this, this old Schindler survivor, working on Spielberg to release the six-hour version of the film. People will watch it, Steve. <laughs> were, were other, did this uh, gentleman in, in Beverly Hills try to get other writers to write this story, and he yes, got you to he, say yes? He, he did um, get anyone connected with the media. If you'd gone in there, he probably would have tried to get you to mention it on the show. He had people salted throughout the studios who were involved in various some of them in television production, who were trying to talk their studios into filming the, uh, the story. In 1962, he had the wife of quite a famous uh, film producer in the store, and she wanted her handbag repaired, and he took it hostage until, <laughs> until she gave him an introduction to her husband. And the upshot was, 
that uh, MGM very nearly made a film in the 19, early 1960s while Schindler was still alive. And he, Schindler would have loved that. Schindler would have loved to have had a hunk like Liam Neeson playing him. <laughs> and he would have loved to have introduced himself to people out the front. It, it, it would have been uh, great if he'd still been alive, but he was actually six years under the sod, buried in Jerusalem, when I first met the Schindler survivor in 1980. The, uh, did that then provoke your own curiosity about your own beginnings, your own uh, history in Australia? Well, I've always been interested in uh, the accidents of immigration. You know, most of my grandfather's uh, siblings immigrated to Brooklyn. And I've always wondered why. I was, I was quite pleased that my grandfather immigrated to Australia. I can't imagine not having been an Australian, and yet these people so close to me by blood, these Connecticut Yankees, my cousins, um, talked differently, had somewhat different uh, um, souls, were Yankee gentlemen and, uh, gentlemen, and I was an Australian yobbo, you know. I always been fascinated by immigration, also fascinated by the fact that my grandfather was a storekeeper. He was tall and dreamy, literary, incompetent, political. He was too proud to ask people to pay their bills, and he was married to this little dumpling-esque woman, uh, an Irish peasant who was very canny, and her name was Katie Keneally. They had two stores. The first store had his name on it, and the second store had her name on it. I don't know what that change in good old-fashioned sexist Australia in the early days of the century, I don't know what it did to their love life, but it's fascinating to try to interpret how she got control of the business and how he then lived. He lived contentedly. I think he was a contented man. I think he thought... Um, you know, I've, al I've always felt that if I was married to um, um, a, a woman, I know, a, 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 to, to a woman who was the, the powerhouse, mind you, my wife is a powerhouse, but if I was married to a woman who made 20 times what I did, I'd be delighted. And I think I would be delighted, and uh, I think he was pretty delighted <laughs> to have the weight lifted from him so he could concentrate on important things like political opinions, memorizing various Australian poets, arguing whether they were better than... Uh, 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 arguing whether they were better than the Romantics and waiting for home rule to break out in Ireland. Um, <laughs> and, of course, bumping out nine kids. That takes a bit of time, too. <laughs> Heavy responsibility for a man, I know that. Uh, I'd like to hear just the opening of your, uh, of your new novel, A River Town, in your own voice, which is uh, dedicated to the memory of your grandparents who kept store in the Maclay Valley? Yes, north of Sydney, uh, 300 miles north. Well, this is the prologue, and it, um, it concerns an event which actually happened. This isn't a a sexist uh, fantasy of an aging Australian male. This is the way the cops used to behave to bodies. On a hot morning in the new year, 
a black police wagon went rolling along Kempsey's Belgrave Street from the direction of West Kempsey. All of this in the Valley of the Maclay on the lush and humid north coast of New South Wales. The wagon attracted a fair amount of notice from the passers-by and witnesses. Many shop owners and customers, in fact, came out onto the footpaths to watch this wagon be drawn by, and some of them waved mockingly at the dark, barred window of the thing. Tim Shea of T. Shea General Store stayed behind his counter but looked out with as much fascination as anyone as the wagon passed two constables on the driver's seat and Fry, the sergeant of police, riding behind. The prisoners inside the wagon were being taken to Central Wharf for shipment aboard SS Burrowong to their trial in Sydney. They were the abortionist Mrs Mulroney and her husband Merv, both of them about 50 years of age. Just before Christmas, Mrs Mulroney had been visited by a young woman she did not know and who offered only a first name of convenience for the purpose of their transaction. Mrs Mulroney fed the young woman some of the standard drugs of her trade, but the patient had at some stage, instead of miscarrying her unwanted baby, gone into convulsions and perished. Panicking, the Mulroneys had cleaned her body, packed her into a large boot box, and driven her by night upriver to Sherwood, where they'd added some stones to the box and released it into the river. The box had perversely floated, though, and was found the next morning wedged amongst logs on the riverbank. It was traced almost immediately to Mrs. Mulroney. And so to help in the, uh, I, I don't want to bore you to death, but to help in the identification, the Commissioner of Police in Sydney, nearly 300 miles south, authorized one of the Kempsey surgeons, in accordance with long police practice in such affairs, to separate the head from the rest of the body. The remains were then given burial on the edge of the cemetery in West Kempsey, but to assist the police, the head was preserved in a flask of alcohol. When the Mulroneys were shipped south, the flask remained to torment the dreams of some and to shock and chasten even the hardened citizens of the Maclay. The age to some was otherwise hopeful. Hard times were said to be ending. Within a year, the six former colonies of Australia would, to suit the new century, fall into line as a new federal commonwealth. Commonwealth a flowering, bountiful word. But on hearing of this police severing of the unhappy girl, some may have been seized by the superstition that a new spate of barbarities would be let loose. Des despite and because of himself, Tim Shea was one of these. Thomas Keneally, reading from the River Town, the beginning. It sets the scene for all the events that then take on. You uh, describe some of the actions in the book as being like uh, sort of minuscule in direction at one point, but like compass headings. By the end of the book, they take off in quite disparate directions by the end. Uh, yes, that's, that's right. If you, um, uh, th there was a woman novelist in, in Australia who wrote a 
denunciatory novel about her former lover who was a, a former senator and he sued her and judgment went against her because she even described his hubcaps intimately. So if you're writing about a former lover, you should change the hubcaps. Um, <laughs> alter, you know, not, not satirize absolutely every aspect of his life, only 99%. If you change one thing, if you change the color of the hair, if you change uh, the fact that a certain character had two sons to the fact that he had a son and daughter, if you change uh, the stature even of a woman or the town she comes from in your novel, this is a minus compass deviation from the path of reality. But novels are so long, as people have noticed, they go on forever, but <laughs> particularly, um, particularly Norman Mailers. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the deviation by the end of the book is enormous. It's like, being, it's like starting off from San Francisco and trying to cross the Pacific with a minute compass deviation. If you're heading towards Sydney, you'll end up in Indonesia if you're off just a little bit at the end of all that distance. And that's what it's like in a, in a novel. And of course, characters demand to be fictionalized because they, uh, I think, uh, I'm, I'm a sort of primitive Jungian. That is, I believe at the back of the head, the bit that still has a bit, hair, a bit of hair, uh, there is a, a well where all the men and the mythic men and women, the, go the gods with little g's, the hero ancestors, the archetypes, all live. And when you write a novel, they assert themselves anyhow. They arise and assert themselves, you know. My, my last novel was not Schindler, but it was about um, a young mother called uh, Kate Gaffney, and it's called Woman of the Inner Sea. It was published about 92 years ago. And it's written from the point of view of, as I say, of a young mother. And I was terrified of, of writing that book. I postponed it for 10 years. Uh, it was based on a story, a young woman uh, of loss and survival that a young woman had told me. But down in that bit of the brain is all the psychic equipment you need. And I know this runs counter to a lot of modern argument, but is all the psychic tackle that you need to be a woman. Because, I mean, the it's it planted there when we're minute, just in case the chromosome goes the other way. There's only a chromosome between us, after all, and that's nothing between friends. <laughs> and so, um, the, you know, I think all that comes into play, too. And writers generally describe that process as the character taking over the book. It's, it's not the characters taking over the book. It, it's your own, uh, the bit of your brain that's beyond your horizon, the, the most important bit, uh, taking over the book. The, uh, the prologue that you read had a gruesome detail in it. Schindler's List had lots of gruesome details in it. Uh, when, you're, when you're writing them, do these prey on your dreams at night? Well, Schindler was particularly difficult. I'm glad, uh, when I finished the research, um, trip, I went back to Australia with all the material and put it all on a pool table and marked every three months with a different of the story with a different kind of marker so that I could just go from document to document to document 
interview to interview to interview and so on, and put it together chronologically. Uh, this is a beach off Sydney. Sydney is uh, very much San Francisco's um, sibling in appearance and ambience, um, except we don't get quite as much mist, and we haven't developed the uh, aqua microphone device that you have. <laughs> but um, um, in the middle of Schindler, I had a severe depression, very severe depression. Uh, it was connected with Armin Gert. It was connected with the survivors. I think if I'd tried to write it in Krakow, say, where it all happened, in the old world, where some of those obsessions still exist, it would have been worse. But I was writing it in the sun in Sydney with just outside my window all these protein-fed Aussie boys and girls sitting on on surfboards, and they didn't know who Hitler was. They probably thought he was a brand of surf wax or something. So it was good. It was good in, in a way to, to write it in that sunny vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Is, Thomas Keneally's new book is called A River Town, published by uh, Doubleday, and it's a story inspired by adventures that actually took place in his own life, and it's a bit about an important time in Australian history. Thank you very much for writing the books that you have, and thank you for stopping by. Thank you very much. Thomas Keneally. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.